0: What is the book of Job about? We've been looking at this book for quite a few weeks now, so I wonder, having been looking at it, how would you answer that question? Maybe we'd say, well, it's about a man called Job and his experiences in life. Maybe we'd go further than that and we'd say, it's not just about one man, it's about suffering. Job's experience has been recorded to teach us about suffering. We listen to Job and we learn about our own difficulties. There's some truth in those answers. We do learn a lot about Job and his experience does help us with our own suffering when it comes. But we've also seen this is not a book of answers. If we come to it with a long list of questions, we will probably go away frustrated. Lots of our why questions will not be answered by this book. So then what is the book about? Ultimately, it's about God. If there's one thing we're to take from this book, it's that God is worthy of our trust and our worship. Whatever our circumstances, even when we don't understand our circumstances, he's worthy to be trusted and worshipped even in our suffering. Even when he doesn't explain himself to us. This book is about God and we do hear from God. Directly. We've heard from him already way back in chapters 1 and 2. And we're going to hear from him directly again in chapters 38 to 42. But in between that, what we've heard is a bunch of men arguing with each other. We've heard lots from the three wise men. Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar. Except they turned out to be pretty foolish men. They brought the best that human wisdom can offer. But it has been pretty useless to Job. Lots of what they say isn't true, and the bits that are true just don't apply to Job's situation. And so we've heard Job giving them a piece of his mind. And along the way he's given God a piece of his mind too. So, the bulk of this book has been filled with human ideas and human opinions. And really, it has got us nowhere. Nothing has been resolved. The main outcome is that everybody got angry. The three friends got angry because Job wouldn't accept their wonderful wisdom. Job got angry because the three friends were insensitive and they were wrong. And of course, Job got angry with God too. He questioned God's justice. He questioned God's approach to running the world. And he got pretty worked up about God's silence. Again and again, Job has demanded a meeting with God to set a few things straight. All that anger and argument took us from chapter 3 to chapter 31. But last week we met somebody new. Someone who hadn't spoken before. He had been listening, we discovered, but he had kept quiet. His name is Elihu, and he finally spoke up in chapter 32. Elihu claims to be a prophet from God. And we notice the book itself seems to back up Elihu's claim. It seems to present him as a genuine messenger from God. And in chapter 33, after he'd introduced himself in 32, Elihu made two points. First, he warned Job to be very careful. We know that Job's suffering is undeserved. It's not come because of some sin. And Elihu does not dispute that. But he does point out Job has come pretty close to sinning in the midst of his suffering. He's been so obsessed with justifying himself, he's come close to condemning God. He's been so focused on proving himself to be in the right, that he's just about declared God to be in the wrong. And Elihu says, Be careful, Job. Ease up on that. Because it's not true. And the other point that Elihu made is that God is not silent. He does speak, even in suffering. There are things to be learnt in the midst of suffering, even undeserved suffering. Job needs to see that, otherwise, his suffering is going to make him bitter instead of better. He's going to come out of this a worse person instead of a better one. That's what we saw in chapters 32 and 33. And At the end of that, Job does not respond to Elihu. He has nothing to say. And so in chapters 34 and 35, Elihu continues. He goes on challenging Job about his attitude. And he is pretty severe with Job. He's severe because the state of Job's heart is a serious issue. He needs to be challenged severely because he needs to change his heart. Before his heart settles into hardness, bitterness and rebellion. Well then Elihu pauses again at the end of chapter 35 and again Job stays quiet. And then when Elihu continues, he changes his tone. As he comes to the end of what he has to say, he moves from rebuking Job to pointing Job upwards. The climax of Elihu's message is simply this. Behold God. We don't use the word behold anymore, but it's what Elihu is calling Job to do. Just stop. And consider God. Reflect on who he is. Contemplate him for a bit. So follow along then as we read these final words from Elihu. Chapters 36 and 37. If you haven't found them yet, it's page 536 in the church Bible. Or 829 in the large print Bibles. Chapter 36, verse 1. Elihu continued, Bear with me a little longer and I will show you that there is more to be said on God's behalf. I get my knowledge from afar. I will ascribe justice to my maker. Be assured that my words are not false. One who has perfect knowledge is with you. God is mighty but despises no one. He is mighty and firm in his purpose. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their rights. He does not take his eyes off the righteous. He enthrones them with kings and exalts them forever. But if people are bound in chains, held fast by cords of affliction, he tells them what they have done, that they have sinned arrogantly. He makes them listen to correction and commands them to repent of their evil. If they obey and serve him, They will spend the rest of their days in prosperity and their years in contentment. But if they do not listen, they will perish by the sword and die without knowledge. The godless in heart harbor resentment. Even when he fetters them, they do not cry for help. They die in their youth among male prostitutes of the shrines. But those who suffer, he delivers in their suffering. He speaks to them in their affliction. He is wooing you from the jaws of distress to a spacious place free from restriction, to the comfort of your table laden with choice food. But now you are laden with the judgment due to the wicked. Judgment and justice have taken hold of you. Be careful that no one entices you by riches. Do not let a large bribe turn you aside. Would your wealth or even all your mighty efforts sustain you so that you would not be in distress? Do not long for the night to drag people away from their homes. Beware of turning to evil, which you seem to prefer to affliction. God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed his ways for him or said to him, you have done wrong? Remember to extol his work, which people have praised in song. All humanity has seen it. Mortals gaze on it from afar. How great is God, beyond our understanding. The number of his years is past finding out. He draws up the drops of water, which distill as rain to the streams. The clouds pour down their moisture, and abundant showers fall on mankind. Who understands how he spreads out the clouds, how he thunders from his pavilion, see how he scatters his lightning about him, bathing the depths of the sea? This is the way He governs the nations and provides food in abundance. He fills His hands with lightning and commands it to strike its mark. His thunder announces the coming storm. Even the cattle make known His approach. At this, my heart pounds and leaps from its place. Listen! Listen to the roar of His voice, to the rumbling that comes from His mouth. He unleashes His lightning beneath the whole heaven and sends it to the ends of the earth. After that comes the sound of his roar. He thunders with his majestic voice. When his voice resounds, he holds nothing back. God's voice thunders in marvelous ways. He does great things beyond our understanding. He says to the snow, fall on the earth, and to the rain shower, be a mighty downpour, so that everyone he has made may know his work. He stops all people from their labor. The animals take cover. They remain in their dens. The tempest comes out from its chamber. The cold from the driving winds. The breath of God produces ice. And the broad waters become frozen. He loads the clouds with moisture. He scatters His lightning through them. At His direction, they swirl around over the face of the whole earth to do whatever He commands them. He brings the clouds to punish people or to water his earth and show his love. Listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's wonders. Do you know how God controls the clouds and makes his lightning flash? Do you know how the clouds hang poised? Those wonders of him who is perfect in knowledge? You who swelter in your clothes when the land lies hushed under the south wind, can you join him in spreading out the skies hard as a mirror of cast bronze? Tell us what we should say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of our darkness. Should he be told that I want to speak? Would anyone ask to be swallowed up? No one can look at, now no one can look at the sun, bright as it is in the skies, after the wind has swept them clean. Out of the north he comes in golden splendor. God comes in awesome majesty. The Almighty is beyond our reach. And exalted in power, in his justice and great righteousness, he does not oppress. Therefore, people revere him. For does he not have regard for all the wise in heart? This is God's Word. And as Elihu gives his final speech, he starts by underlining his mission. He's not here to side with the three friends. Nor has he come to pat Job on the back either. No, Elihu has come, chapter 36, verse 2, to speak on God's behalf. And the insight he brings is not his own. His knowledge comes, verse 3, from afar, from God himself. And that explains Elihu's claim in verse 4, One who has perfect knowledge is with you. In the context here, Elihu is not claiming that he knows everything. He's claiming to speak as a true prophet. He doesn't know everything there is to know. He makes that clear later on. But Elihu has a message that is perfectly true. And then with that... Introduction, Elihu says two things about God. He is mighty and purposeful and He is unfathomable and untamed. Maybe that's four things. But Elihu says it in two big sections. First of all, God is mighty and purposeful. Chapter 36, verse 5. God is mighty and but despises no one. He is mighty and firm in his purpose. God is powerful. He is determined to work out his purposes. But at the same time, he does not despise us little human beings. One writer says, human beings are not God's playthings. He does not exercise his power in an arbitrary manner. God is not careless about people. Elihu goes on to say specifically, God is mighty and purposeful in justice. You notice, Elihu does not deny that righteous people can suffer in this life. But he says that doesn't mean God is confused. It doesn't mean God is unjust. He knows who the righteous are and he knows who the wicked are. And, verse 6, he does not keep the wicked alive but gives the afflicted their rights. He does not take his eyes off the righteous. He enthrones them with kings and exalts them forever. Elihu is different from the three friends because he knows righteous people can be afflicted. He's also different because he knows the righteous may not get their reward until the end. When they are exalted, it will be forever. But they might not be exalted right away. Then Elihu says, God is just in giving everyone opportunity to respond to him. Verse 8. If people are bound in chains, held fast by cords of affliction, he tells them what they have done, that they have sinned arrogantly. He makes them listen to correction and commands them to repent of their evil. If they obey and serve him, they will spend the rest of their days in prosperity and their years in contentment. Literally, they will end their days in prosperity and their years in contentment. Elihu is not promising a quick fix for people who turn to God. He's promising an ultimate fix in the end. It goes on in verse 12. But if they do not listen, they will perish by the sword and die without knowledge. The godless in heart harbor resentment. Even when he fetters them, they do not cry for help. They die in their youth among male prostitutes of the shrines. In other words, they die in debauchery, that last part is saying. Prostitutes of the shrines are temple prostitutes connected to the worship of pagan gods. So when God speaks, those who won't listen to him may die violently by the sword. They may, may die in ignorance of God without knowledge, They may die hard and bitter against Him, full of resentment to God, refusing to turn to Him. Or they may flee Him out in a life of self-destruction, like those who die among temple prostitutes. The point is that God is mighty and purposeful in justice. We can count on that. In the end, he does not spare the wicked. And he does exalt his people. Then Elihu says, God is mighty and purposeful in love. Verse 15. But those who suffer, he delivers in their suffering. He speaks to them in their affliction. He is wooing you from the jaws of distress to a spacious place, free from restriction, to the comfort of your table laden with choice food. This is different from what the three friends said. They told Job his suffering was sent to bring him to repentance. And of course, God can use suffering that way. Elihu has acknowledged that a few verses back. God can send suffering to bring correction. But here, Elihu is saying something much more profound. He's saying God often uses suffering to deliver his people. Their pain may be the means of their deliverance. He says God may use suffering to woo or to allure his people, to lead them away from something lesser. And captivate them with something greater. What does God want to allure them from? What does he want to deliver them from? Elihu says he wants to draw them from their restricted view of him. Into a bigger view of him. From their narrow experience of him into a deeper experience of him. Elihu describes it as being led into a spacious place where they find their table laden with choice food. Literally, your table full of fatness, which doesn't sound very good. But it means abundance, fullness. And this is not just about a table with food on it. It's a picture of a life of fullness. This is food for our soul. In Psalm 23, David says this was his experience. You remember the psalm, he says to God, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The enemies have not been magically taken away from David's life. In fact, they're pressing in on him. He's very aware of them. But in that situation, through the situation, God leads David to a deeper, richer place. He anoints David's head with oil. His cup overflows. And that's all a picture of this fatness. This abundance. In fact, the word fatness occurs in Psalm 23 as well. God can use suffering to lead his people further into his love. C.S. Lewis wrote seven books about the world of Narnia. And in the last of those books, the last chapter is called Out of the Shadowlands. The characters in the story are led through valleys. They're led up steep hills and always a call keeps coming to them, further up and further in. Finally, after all those valleys and all those hills, they reach great golden gates. The gates swing open for them. Inside they can see a beautiful garden. And from within the gates, they hear the call one last time. Come further up and further in. That's what Elihu is getting at here. Job's suffering is undeserved. And he's beginning to get bitter about that. But Elihu says, stop. Listen. Can't you hear what God is saying in your suffering? He's not angry with you. He's not against you. He's calling you. Come further up and further in. He's saying, yes, you belong to me, Job. You know me to some degree already. But there's more to know. There's more to receive. Let this pain spur you on to seek more of me. To let go of lesser things. To let go of smaller ambitions. And to go after me. Let this pain and this loss lead you out of the shadow lands and into my fullness. This is not a promise of healing. It's not a guarantee that life's problems will go away. It's a promise there is more of God to know and experience. In verses 17 to 21, Elihu warns Job again. You're in danger of not hearing this call from God. You're so distracted by other issues. In verse 17, he says, You are laden with the judgment due to the wicked. That seems to mean you're obsessed with whether God is getting justice right. That issue has taken hold of you. It doesn't mean Job is getting the judgment due to the wicked. It means he's so focused on it and that whole issue that he can't see anything else. Then Elihu goes on to say, you're obsessing too over the things that you've lost. The riches and the wealth that have gone. Succeeding on those things will lead you into despair and bitterness, Job. Instead, Elihu says, consider this about your situation. God is mighty and purposeful in love. And your suffering is no exception. He's calling you in your suffering. He's calling you on to know him more. All of us face enemies in our lives. They might be people. They might take the form of illness or some other painful situation. And we've seen throughout this book, you and I might not deserve those enemies. And God may never explain why they've come. But will you trust that he has prepared a table for you? That he has good things to give you, even in the presence of your enemies. Again, this book is telling us we have a choice to make. We can obsess over what we've lost. We can get bitter over the things that don't make sense. Or we can go after more of God. We can let those enemies drive us further up and further into God. Elihu goes on, God is not only mighty and purposeful, God is unfathomable and untamed. Straight after telling us God is great and that He calls us to go after more of Him, now Elihu says, God is greater than we will ever grasp. We will never get to the end of him. We will never climb the heights or plumb the depths of him. Verse 26, how great is God beyond our understanding? Elihu is not denying that we can know God. We can know him truly And we can know him deeply. That was the point of verses 1 to 25. Elihu is saying we will never know God completely. And to show that God is beyond our understanding, Elihu turns to God's world. Verse 27. He draws up the drops of water, which distill as rain to the streams. The clouds pour down their moisture and abundant showers fall on mankind. Who can understand how he spreads out the clouds, how he thunders from his pavilion? Sometimes Christians have made the mistake of arguing that if we don't understand something in the world, that means God does it. The problem with that line of thinking is the more we understand about the world, the more God gets squeezed out of it. If we only attribute the things we don't understand to God's power, we end up attributing less and less to Him. But notice that is not what Elihu does. He has a basic understanding of the process of evaporation and precipitation. Verse 27, He draws up the drops of water, evaporation, and verse 28 the clouds pour down their moisture, precipitation. So Elihu well, is not saying there's a lot we don't understand about the processes of nature, so God must be great. Now, his point is God stands behind these processes of nature the things we don't understand and the things we do understand. He uses all these processes. To govern his world. Back in chapter 1, we saw a desert storm come and destroy Job's family. Knocking down the house that they were in. But look here in verse 30. See how he scattered his lightning about him, bathing the depths of the sea. This is the way... He governs the nations and provides food in abundance. The same processes of nature that can produce a destructive storm, like in chapter 1, those same processes can also bring life, feeding the crops that go on to feed the nations. And Elihu's point is, a God with this much power, a God who can bend the processes of nature to accomplish His will, how could we ever fully understand Him? How could we ever hope to tame and domesticate Him? Look how Elihu describes Him at the beginning of chapter 37. At this, my heart pounds and leaps from its place. Listen. Listen to the roar of His voice to the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He unleashes his lightning beneath the whole heaven and it sends it to the ends of the earth. After that comes the sound of his roar. He thunders with his majestic voice. When his voice resounds, he holds nothing back. God's voice thunders in marvelous ways. He does great things beyond our understanding. God is untamed. He's not on a leash. He roars. He is not bound by our expectations of what he ought to do. And yet, he is not chaotic. This untamed God works with precision and order. His ways may often be mysterious to us, but they're always purposeful. Look down to verse 13 of chapter 37. He brings the clouds to punish people or to water his earth and show his love. The word for love there is the word for God's special covenant-keeping love. This is a God who can be depended on. He keeps his promises. He is not chaotic, but he is untamed. There's much we can know about Him. But there's always more to Him than we can grasp. Here in verse 13, We cannot unravel how the very same work of God can bring His punishment on some and His love to others. And so, verse 14, Listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's wonders. Do you know how God controls the clouds and makes his lightning flash? Do you know how the clouds hang poised? Those wonders of him who is perfect in knowledge. You who swelter in your clothes when the land lies hushed under the south wind. Can you join him in spreading out the skies, hard as a mirror of cast bronze? Tell us what we should say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of our darkness. Should he be told that I want to speak? Would anyone ask to be swallowed up? No one can look at the sun, bright as it is in the skies after the wind has swept them clean. Out of the north He comes in golden splendor. God comes in awesome majesty. The Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power. In His justice and great righteousness, He does not oppress. Therefore, people revere Him. For does he not have regard for all the wise in heart? Can you see the balance here? There are things we can know about God. We can be sure of his justice and his righteousness. His covenant-keeping love. His control. His perfect knowledge. Those truths about God's character are firm places to stand. We can build our lives on those truths. We have a trustworthy God. But we will never fully figure Him out. We dare not forget He is bigger and greater than us. We cannot grasp Him completely. We can't kneel down His strategies and His ways. Yes, yes. He calls us further up and further in. But we'll never get to the end of Him. And it's true as Christians, we know God in a fuller way than Job ever could. We have these words of the Apostle John, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is Himself God has made Him known. When we look at Jesus, we see God. Through Jesus we can know God more fully than any Old Testament believer could. Jesus is the greatest reason we have to trust God. He is our guarantee of God's love and acceptance. And still, with all that we know, we cannot fathom God. We can't measure his heights and his depth. We can't get our minds around him. The Apostle Paul gave his life to preaching Jesus as the revelation of God. And even with that great certainty that Paul had, he could still say, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Paul agreed with Elihu. We can know God truly. There's so much we can be sure of. Truths about God we can rest on. And still, the fullness of God is beyond our reach. There are heights. And depths of God that will always be mysterious to us. And that's good. If God was small enough for us to understand, He wouldn't be big enough to rule this world with justice and great righteousness. It's good that He's bigger than we'll ever understand. There are many reasons why you and I find pain and suffering so difficult. But surely one of those reasons is this. We have been taught that humanity can master everything. We can understand the workings of this universe. We can conquer every disease that comes along eventually. We can overcome every obstacle that we face. Isn't that what we're told all the time? If you work hard, you can achieve anything. If you search hard, you can find the answer to anything. That's what we're told, and we begin to believe it. We become greater and greater in our own eyes. We think that we understand how things work. And we have then strong opinions about how God should work. We forget He is beyond our reach and exalted in power. We forget there will always be some mystery about Him. And when you and I forget those things, we get confused and we get offended when God dares to surprise us. Elihu says to Job and he says to us, Stop. Stop and consider the wonders of God. Listen to the roar of His voice. He does great things beyond our understanding. We can know Him truly and we can know Him deeply. But we will never know Him completely. So behold Him. Praise Him. Revere Him. And then in humility, hear Him calling you further up and further in to greater trust in Him, greater love for Him, and greater fellowship with Him. Even in the worst circumstances. Let's